a lot of people who don't find natural organisms or objects automatically interesting. Oh, look at the shape of that cloud. Yeah, so what? Well, if I tell you that, that's telling you where an island is over the horizon, well, maybe that is a tiny bit more interesting. Or if it's telling us that it's going to rain in four hours, or if it's helping us predict how the birds or, or butterflies are going to react, that suddenly brings in a whole nother group of people. Because as you mentioned earlier, our brain does love a bit of deduction. There's a reason that everybody in the English-speaking world knows the words Sherlock Holmes. Our brain has evolved to do this stuff. <laughs> Welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. This is a place for us to explore the wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and I hope you enjoy the ride. When was the last time you navigated somewhere without using your phone or some piece of technology? Can't remember? Yeah, me neither but I've always had a fascination with the ancient skills of navigation and a ton of reverence for our ancestral wayfinders. Because as far as I could tell, they're a bunch of badasses. For example, the Pacific Islanders who navigated open ocean voyages without instruments and only using the stars, the sun, the ocean, and any other clues nature threw their way. It's both awe-inspiring and terrifying when I think about it. Despite all the technology we have these days, some people are working passionately to help revive and nurture the art and science of natural navigation. One of those people is our guest today, Tristan Gooley, who is known as the Natural Navigator. Nicknamed by some as the Sherlock Holmes of nature, Tristan's philosophy centers around the idea that humans have an innate ability to navigate and connect with the natural world using observational and intuitive skills. Tristan has led expeditions in five continents, climbed mountains in Europe, Africa, and Asia. He's walked with and studied the methods of various indigenous peoples in some of the most remote regions on Earth. And he's the only living person to have both flown solo and sailed single-handed across the Atlantic. Tristan is also a prolific writer who has written several books and educational resources. His latest book is How to Read a Tree, which we'll get into in our conversation but first, I wanted to know what it feels like to navigate naturally through Tristan's eyes and why Tristan thinks navigation is a worthy cultural experience, even in our hypermodern world. Let's get into it. Tristan Gooley, welcome to the show. Appreciate you being here. So good to be with you, Jeff. Well, I thought I'd start out with a little silly one here, if you don't mind. Your new book, How to Read a Tree, was coming out and I had it on the mind. I was thinking in advance about our conversation we had a pretty blustery spring coming out of a pretty wet winter. And we got this message from the power company. And you get these texts sometimes when there's a problem. I thought it was so funny. My wife and I both had a not that big of a chuckle, but a little chuckle because the note said, a tree has contacted SDG&E equipment. And I thought, I need to ask Tristan, what, you know, like, what does he think the tree was saying there? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what the tree was trying to say, but it clearly didn't like the power lines. So um, just a, a goofy way to start. I'm going to hear the crickets, so we'll keep moving. <laughs> but, you know, one thing that's that I really appreciate in your writing and your speaking and teaching is you exhibit such a giddiness and sense of wonder when you share some of your stories from walking out in the, the forest and woodlands and things. And 
What I see you doing is observing on both really micro levels and macro levels. And you make analogies to, it's like clues in a mystery, like the same sort of feelings you might get when you're watching a movie and you're trying to solve a mystery in your head that way and you're sort of part of it. I think that's really cool. But one thing I thought would be helpful is, and quite, I'm just going to telegraph it up front, I want to seduce people a little bit into this to rekindle some navigation skills here, that it's a fun and joyous activity. Can you just walk us through, imagine yourself, Tristan, walking through wherever you want to be walking through, forest, a prairie, whatever, open land. Can you bring to life some of the sensory feelings that you're getting? I really want to help people understand what you're feeling. You're often touching things, smelling things, looking at things, but you're also sharing the feelings that you get along the way. Can you bring us into that felt experience? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. And, and each and every time is different because there's a proactive part to natural navigation where we have a tool set and we know what we're going to, if the sun's out on a, on a day, it would be a very odd natural navigation exercise if that didn't play a part. So we know some of the characters, as I think of them sometimes, that are going to feature in our experience or, or story. But it's reactive in the sense that nature serves things up. And as you've highlighted there and on different scales, you know, there might be a mountain summit that we can see from a, a dozen miles away, which gives us a good sense of where we are without too much effort. Or it may be that we're overcast in woodland and we're having to really study the, the lichens on bark or something like that. So for people who are totally new to natural navigation, the, the key point for me to say is that an interest in it normally starts with appreciating that it works practically. It would still be a fascinating subject if 99 times out of 100 we got completely lost using it because it leads us down wonderful lines of inquiry, but it does work. It's not to the degree as accurate as instruments, otherwise instruments wouldn't exist, but it can do some things instruments can't. So in my journeys, normally there's a practical framework and that normally takes the shape of some handrail linear features. So I have the most fun with natural navigation when I, for example, if it's a very short exercise, a couple of hours just to blow the cobwebs out at the end of the day, I might park the car at the top of a hill ridge and use that ridge line as my handrail, the thing that I cannot get lost, even if I try to, it'd be hard. And then I might just use gradient to dip off that. And from that moment onwards, I'm just keeping aware that I know where my home, my base, my vehicle is. I would go uphill, but then I would know when I hit my handrail the line, which way to turn and pick it up again. So from that point, it becomes much more playful because all I'm then doing is adding layers of richness. So if the sun's out and I've got the sun and the gradient, I'm completely spoiled. As I said, I couldn't get lost really if I tried. But most people think, well, job's done for natural navigation then. But but my whole take on natural navigation is it is richness and understanding. So a natural navigator's work or play is only done once you understand everything in the universe. And that's not going to happen in a walk. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about understanding why a leaf is the angle it is. We could look at leaves and say, well, their angles are just random. It's just green noise. It doesn't mean anything. But leaves on the south side of the trees will point towards the ground and on the north side of trees, they point out because they're, we can think of them as solar panels and we get light from low down in the sky on the southern side, lower on average. And on the north side of the trees, they're only getting light from a directly above them typically. So that leads to that difference there. And then the reactive part is I might be hearing the birds. At the edge of woodland, you tend to get much more bird song activity. 
So birds typically, like a lot of animals, they need a mix in their terrain. They don't want to be in the heart of dense woodland. It's not ideal on lots of levels. They ideally want access to open country, access to water and food. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them want access to trees as well. So what I tend to find is that as I head into woodland, the sound of the birds is very clear. And I'm just making a mental note, sometimes by individual species in my part of the world. In the last couple of days, I've been hearing the chaffinches and the robins and the tits and things like that. And But actually, the names aren't important. As I move into the trees, the noise levels dip. And there are layers on top of this. So you can do exactly the same exercise with just four hours difference. And the map has changed completely because the bird and the animal activity will, will peak in twilight at the start and the end of the day. So if I do a little exercise as the sun's rising, the audio map will be completely different to if I do it in the middle of the day. But yeah, the joy for me is there's a practical framework, as I've explained. And then it's like nature is sometimes a bit of a tease. Sometimes you don't get the things that you want to, but it nearly always offers some things you're not expecting. And my whole philosophy is absolutely everything has meaning. So if at any point I'm either struggling in a practical sense or in a philosophical sense, it's quite rare, but very occasionally I'll sort of go, nature's being a bit samey. I mean, that feeling never lasts for more than about three seconds because I'll just suddenly go, ah, oh, that's 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 not a bit of bark. That's a, that's a butterfly's wing that I'm seeing there. Why? What is that doing there? Why is it there and not where I'd expect it? Ah, oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's because the, the sun's gone behind a cloud. I get it. It's all making sense. So, yeah, I could go on for about sort of 20 hours in, the, in that vein and have almost scratched the surface of the subject. But hopefully that gives you a flavor. Yeah, well, it's clear that you just have a well of curiosity bubbling at all times. I just interviewed a culinary professor of mine recently, and she's also an improv artist. And I realize now you are an improv artist as well. <laughs> when you're out <laughs> navigating, because the, the reactive piece you talked about, while it can look samey, as you said, and seem static, there's so much dynamic stuff going on. And we are having to, to respond and react to that in real time. So there's there's an improv element to it. it can I clarify one thing with you? Yeah, You, you mentioned this in, in your latest book. I think you called it the, the invisible hand or invisible handrail exercise that you were just talking about. So in that case, just to clarify, were you using the you were using the ridge line of the hill as your handrail, so to speak, right? Exactly right. So I mean, we learn partly by making mistakes. And in the early days, the mistake I made was thinking that navigation is a point-to-point -point exercise. I mean, it's ironic because I've done all the conventional training anybody could kind of want to do, air land and sea and that sort of stuff. But I didn't when I went into natural navigation. I sort of thought, well, we're ripping the whole rule book up here and starting again. But what I learned fairly quickly is that natural navigation works best when we combine natural compasses with linear features. So if in the most sort of broad, simple sense, we are never 100% lost if we know where a coastline is. Even if you're in the center of the United States or deep in the mid-states there, you can still sort of say to yourself, well, if, if I head towards sunset, I'm eventually going to hit the West Coast. I don't know exactly where and the time it would take. You'd be heading a slightly different direction every few weeks. But in that sense, if somebody said to you, are you lost? You might say, oh, I can't put a pin in a map and tell you exactly where I am. But you're not 100% lost because you can still find a line. So in natural navigation, what we're really doing is going from a line that's effectively useless because it's hundreds or even thousands of miles away to finding lines much closer. And when we're starting out, I really encourage people to use lines that are super bold. If there's a highway that you can kind of hear and in your very first exercise, you're just going to move within a mile of that. 
so that you know if things start going badly, you just say to yourself, well, I know there's a highway south of here. So using every little clue I've got, I'm going to find some way to go roughly south. And providing you aren't more than sort of 50, 60 degrees off, you'll eventually get to it. And that's where the confidence sort of starts. So in that exercise, yes, it's a hill ridge. And very occasionally, I work with people who might want to use this at the really sharp end. If I'm training people in a survival or a military context, they're not interested in the philosophical end of the subject, which I do find deeply fascinating, but I find all of it fascinating. And there there we are sometimes talking about having to be able to find a point, perhaps 500 yards away only in very, very difficult conditions. And you might not have a line to work with, but 99% of the time that I use natural navigation and that I encourage people to use natural navigation, we're wanting to work with some linear feature. In my work, I call it the invisible handrail, because if we're on a track or a trail or a a path or a road or walking alongside a river, that in conventional navigation terms, as many will know, we think of as a handrail because we've got something that our senses can see. If town B is two miles east of town A on the same bank of the same river and you follow the river east, you're not very likely to get lost. You've got a handrail the whole way. But if you step away from that same river, the handrail hasn't disappeared off the universe. It is still there, but we can no longer see it. So at that point in my work, I call it the invisible handrail because it gives us confidence because we know it's there and we know using signs we can get back to it. But it allows us to explore without having a perfect GPS style understanding of where we are. And it's like it's inspired by the greats, indigenous navigators and the ancients. They, it doesn't matter if it's a ship in the middle of an ocean or someone on a camel crossing a desert. They, they very, very rarely in, in ancient terms have an understanding of exactly where they are, but they can find the next line and that's all that matters. Yeah. You just helped me validate something. So as a surfer, my invisible handrail is always the coastline. And it's even if I'm a few hundred miles away, and I have no idea where the coastline is. I'll try to figure out the sun and then I can figure out where the coastline is. But you just gave me permission to be okay with that. But <laughs> even when I'm far from the coast, I think I have no idea where I'm at, but I, <laughs> I, I'm still going for that invisible handrail, which is the coast for me, no matter where I'm at. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is good. So obviously everything you just said is reason enough for me and I hope for many others to, to get out and play with this stuff. That said, we have a lot of technology these days. I know you get this question a lot. But I guess what's your sort of typical, like, run us down your case for in the context of all this modern technology, why still go nurture these sort of primal ancient skills of natural navigation? You're right, I get asked it a lot, but I I don't tire of the question genuinely because I think it cuts very quickly to the core of what has kept me motivated and passionate uh, for for decades. And it's this, natural navigation in the way that I write about it is, is not primarily about pragmatism and necessity. It is an enriching and outdoor cultural activity is, is one way of putting it. So I sometimes use the analogy of food here because if when the microwave is invented, chefs would be being asked, is there really any any kind of need for the conventional oven? Nobody's ever going to put meat on a flame ever again, are they? You know, this thing will do it. And of course, we can see now but these debates have to take place and we have to understand that the richness of life is not all about necessity. Occasionally, I come back to um, the psychologist um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I, I don't know if you've come across that. The, yeah. We're not going to be thinking about beautiful opera music or sculpture if we're 
two hours off dying from hypothermia. But once we've got ourselves to a place where we're not threatened by the elements and we're not worried about predators and or other pressing human dynamics, we have the luxury to think, well, okay, I might have a couple of hours in this day where I don't just need to think about primal needs. And that's where it becomes a cultural activity. So I just think life is so much more interesting for the things that we don't need than the things we do. Once you <laughs> have that chance to say, and, and the whole of natural navigation for me is why are things the way they are? Once we understand that the sun is due south in the middle of the day, for natural navigation, you don't need to know any more to actually take on some quite big journeys. I've walked literally for days on end just using that one clue. But my approach to the subject, the way I, I love it, enjoy it, and teach and write about it, is that's on its own not enough. I kind of want to know why the sun is due south, and that takes you out of planet Earth, and you're suddenly on a mental journey going around the solar system trying to understand how the Earth goes around the sun. So if survival is the aim, you're not going to go on that mental journey. But once you've got past that, quite often, if I'm doing anything more than a walk in my local area, I will tend to at least have the minimum bits of kit and quite often have more than the average person would take, but just not to over rely on it. So I've done walks in the UK where it's really quite hard, not impossible, but it's quite hard to get into a situation where navigation is going to lead to a genuine survival situation. But I will quite often have bits of kit that would surprise people. I've got emergency radio beacons and all sorts of things. They just sit in a, in a safety pouch in, in the bottom of the, the pack and quite often come out in exactly the same shape that they went in. Because the aim there is that it's the same with many people's kitchens. You know, the microwave can sit in the corner because you've chosen to chop fresh ingredients and, and give them some love and care and create something that that, that has, a, has a deeper, richer meaning. Natural navigation is the, the same. We take longer. If somebody's saying, what's the fastest way to A to B? Natural navigation is extremely unlikely to be the answer, but it leads to that just much, much richer experience. Uh, I, I really love this. And I'm going to bring in some other stuff you've said or how you've painted the picture before, which is uh, I'll paint these two extremes. In one extreme, it's the survivalist, deep need, Maslow's, we're at the bottom of the pyramid here, it's survival. And then on the other end, it's very didactic, Latin names, and you've got to memorize all this stuff. But you're giving us an invitation to go play with it and be curious and follow that and that there's great value in passing time here on on earth that way <laughs> yeah the names the names thing which you flagged there i feel very passionately about because one of the things which has been a happy accident which i really feel has played a part in me being able to make a, a livelihood as a, a writer and an educator in this field is that I wasn't an automatic nature lover. So when I was a, a kid and right up until possibly late teens, maybe even into 20s, I really, I probably had a below average interest in what people might call natural history, such a weird term. But so if somebody said to me as a 16 year old, oh, wow, look at that butterfly. I just, it, the synapses wouldn't be firing. There'd be no mental fireworks at all. I'd be like, oh yeah, it's quite pretty. You know, my brain would have moved on. Where, how do I get to the top of that hill? And, and you know, <laughs> young, over-energetic sorts of thoughts. And so that has helped me, I think. It wasn't part of any any kind of like sort of logical plan, but it, it's helped me because now when I'm conveying ideas, I don't think somebody will find the shape of a tree automatically interesting. There are 10% of people, for the sake of argument, who do find any organism automatically interesting. But we all have tribes. There are people who find rocks interesting. There are people who find stars interesting. We all have things we find interesting, but there are a lot of people who don't find natural organisms or objects automatically interesting. Oh, look at the shape of that cloud. Yeah, so what? 
Well, if I, if I tell you that's that's telling you where an island is over the horizon, well, maybe that is a tiny bit more interesting. Or if I, or if it's telling us that it's going to rain in four hours, or if it's if, if it's helping us predict how the, the birds or, or butterflies are going to react, that suddenly brings in a whole other group of people. Because as you mentioned earlier, our brain does love a bit of deduction. There's a reason that most everybody in the, in the English-speaking world knows the words Sherlock Holmes. Our brain has evolved to do this stuff, which is why it feels nice. There are lots of computer games that, that hack into that kind of thing where we've got to complete the pattern to, to be satisfied. Crosswords are a nice low-tech example of it. But uh, natural navigation is really a very close relation to what our brain has evolved to do. And it's, over the last few years, I've felt increasingly strongly and passionately that it gives me a good, nice feeling and a sense of well-being and satisfaction and lots of positive words that I could bundle together. But if it was just me, it'd be irrelevant. It's the fact that so many people feed back that they do get this sense of positive feeling. And I think it's because we're allowing our brain. If we take the example of a, a professional sort of race car, you know, Formula One or, or Indy or something like that, that's been asked to sort of drive around a superstore parking lot for sort of years, and then you just suddenly give it a bit of track, you know, the you, the engine's going to make a happy noise. And that's, that's what I think our brain is doing, ironically, very sort of slowly, when we just, just take a half an hour to think, how do I find north using tree roots? Yeah, nature is the ultimate puzzle. It's kind of the, this funny thing. Where if you don't start the puzzle at all, it's kind of whatever. But if you snap a few pieces in, your brain automatically wants to fill in the other bits because it, you get that little dopamine hit that says, hey, keep going. This is fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Navigation is obviously a pragmatic and useful set of skills. But I love how Tristan is inviting us to try natural navigation as simply a joyful way of being. There's no need to have some grand outcome or memorize all the names of everything we encounter. It could just be a fun and enriching way to spend an afternoon. In our techno world increasingly run by performance, metrics, and efficiency, Tristan is opening the door to natural navigation as a way to play and experience the clues of nature much as we might engage with art or even solving a mystery. In this next part of the convo, we learn the hidden clues that trees share with us as we dive into Tristan's latest book, How to Read a Tree. Well, let's talk about your latest book, How to Read a Tree. Beautiful book. I've been ripping through it. Also, we live in this canyon that's full of these Torrey Pines trees, and I'm seeing them in a whole new light now. And two things really struck me over the last couple of weeks here, which is how much the sun and wind are architects of the forest. <laughs> Have you ever thought of it that way as, as, as being sort of these invisible architects? Yeah, I think of it pretty much exactly that way. And the, the word I find myself using, well, there, there are two, it's, in, it's interesting, actually, and I may borrow the word architects more. I think I may have may have used it in the past at some point, but I haven't used it regularly. But I think it is a good one. And I, I might borrow that. So if we think of the two broadest ways that trees help us understand where we are, which is which is what we mean by making a map, I suppose, we've got nature and nurture, two words that are bandied around lots and, and quite often uh, sort of cheaply and people don't give it much thought when they're using it. But in natural navigation, nature, we can think of as the, as the genetic aspect to this. So a pine is never going to look like an oak, whatever happens in its life, because the, the seed's given it a plan and it can only survive in certain places. So pines, by and large, 
like lots of direct sunlight, we're not going to find pines that are being overshaded in the center of a wood. So the pines are sending a message. They're saying, I'm a conifer. I like quite challenging conditions. I'm not going to outcompete other trees if it's all lovely, kind of base rich, sort of moist soil and mild climate. Leave that to the broadleaf trees. So pines are telling us that something quite challenging is going on in the environment. They're telling us there's probably lots of light. So if, if we see them at the edge of woodland, it's more likely to be the southern edge of woodland. So that's the nature. That's the nature part of the map. The nurture, which I, I often refer to as footprints, is when the sun, the wind, water, animals come in and change the genetic plan in some way. Well, not change the genetic plan, but change the look. So if the genetic plan went perfectly every time, and it never does, all trees would look the same and they'd all look identical. But however many years we spend on planet Earth, we'll never find two identical trees. And that's because the elements, the animals and, and, and other forces are leaving their footprints. And this is the nurture part of it. Nurture is sometimes two kind of words. Sometimes they're ravaging it. So in that example, if you take two identical species, and one of the things I, I, I again, you know, the names aren't important here, but if we say two identical seeds and you plant one halfway up a hill and, and one at the top of the hill and one at the bottom of the hill, those three trees have exactly the same nature, the same genetic plan. Their, their, their program is identical for the sake of this, but there will be lots and lots of differences. And one of the boldest ones is the, the tree at the top will be shorter than the tree at the bottom. Trees grow shorter in response to wind. So in a very, very sort of crude map-making sense, we've got a, an altimeter there. The height of the tree is telling us, it's whispering to us how high up the hill we are. And if we just take that concept and look at the trees as we go, we can bring in the broadleaf trees much lower down, nearer the, the river and the valley perhaps. And then all of the trees are telling us where we are in a height sense. And then all the other patterns are telling us direction and how close we're getting to the water and all sorts of other wonderful things. Hey everyone, just a quick note to let you know about the Nature Junkie newsletter. It's a free, short email where I share some wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke a couple times per month. To sign up, just head over to naturejunkielife.com or click the link in the show notes underneath the episode. Okay, back into our conversation. Yeah, there's so much richness there. I'm thinking, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> but I thought it might be helpful to, you cover in the book, a lot of clues from different trees. I've learned so much and it's so dense with cool little tips and clues and techniques and things like that, flagging and wind throw and eyes and all these things. So as I'm walking through just our local canyon here, I'm just, I'm seeing it in a whole new light, as I said, but I wonder if you, you might take us on a typical walk that you might do and piece together for us a few of those different terms and clues, maybe explain what they are. But then importantly, too, like what's the payoff in the end, meaning what's the story those clues are telling you at the end? And maybe sometimes it's just it was a good way to get to the pub. And have beer, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, if you could do it in that way, is that kind of put you on the spot? Yeah, yeah sure. Let's to to keep it um basic in terms of the the ambition. We're going to walk from outside of woodland to to find a clearing in the middle where our our friends have have camped for the night, and that's all we're going to try and do. From the outside, we see the woodland from a few miles away, so we see the shape of the wood, and we notice that it's it's not symmetrical. Nothing in nature is symmetrical, and we start to look at both sides of the woodland from a distance. We notice that there's a what I call a the wedge effect. So the 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 trees are just going down on on one side till they're very very 
short. Ah, that's the southwest side of the wood. That's the prevailing winds in my part of the world will have will have shortened the trees on the southwest side, western side, and lot, lots of other places in the northern temperate zones. As I get closer, I start to notice that the colors are different at the edge of the wood. We have tall trees and small trees. Being a medium tree is just a rubbish strategy. If you're tall, you need loads of energy. You get loads of energy because you get up to the, the direct sunlight. If you're small, you typically get shaded, so you don't get much energy, but you don't need much. In the middle, you're getting done by a poor strategy. So the broadleaf trees typically dominate the smaller ones, and they thrive at the edges and in clearings. So I start to notice that the different colors, it's slightly lighter at the edge of the woodland as we as we go in. And then as I'm getting closer, I'm starting to notice some of those sun and, sun and wind footprints. So I start to get a sense of the types of trees I'm seeing. Are they sun hungry? Well, ah, yeah, I am approaching the southern side of the woods. So I'm seeing the trees, including pines that are, that are very sort of light hungry. As I start to move in through the, the lower trees, I'm seeing the more um, focused uh, footprints and details. I'm noticing how some of the leaves are missing and some of the branches are missing on, on one side of the trees. Again, it's the, the prevailing wind side. And then I start to notice that actually there's a burn effect in some of the leaves have, have been killed. It just reminds me of something I haven't thought about, which is that we're a bit closer to the coast than I thought we were, for example. And then as as, as we head in, we, we transition from sort of open country tree clues where the light is playing quite a big part. We go into the, the woodland itself and it becomes a more pure wind footprint exercise. The, the light is not reaching into the dense parts of the woodland, but storms have gone through over the years and the storms have left loads of trees lying down on their side. And there's a pattern there in my local woods. They've come down from the southwest towards the northeast. They've ripped a root ball out. There are lots of patterns to kind of see there and they're, they're helping me sort of find my way. I notice as I'm moving into the trees that all of the organisms at the edge change. So again, in my part of the world, um, plants like ivy give up up once you get into a certain plot. We've mentioned the birdsong sort of changing. Lichens start dropping in numbers as the light does. A lot of the, the smaller plants start to change and we start to get shade tolerant species. Lots of, I'm focusing on the trees here, but there are lots and lots of other layers that are going on. I'm noticing animal trials and I'm, I'm noticing lots of other things like this. And then as I'm as I'm sort of getting, I'm hoping I'm using occasionally glancing between the, the canopy and picking up some clues from the, the clouds. I think just judging from time and distance that I'm getting close to the, the clearing. I'm now tuning back in and playing everything in reverse. Ah, oh, I'm looking for I'm looking for that fungus, the fly garrick that's telling me that there will be birch trees, because birch trees tell me I'm getting close to a close to a clearing. And then I'm getting super fine-tuned. I'm picking up which way the wind is coming because I'm hoping if, if there's a little bit of a breeze onto my face that I should pick up a smell because the clearing will smell different. The sun is getting in. It's heating things up. It's heating different organisms up. It's heating different plants and different trees up. And that's, uh, speaking of noises, that noise there was a squirrel jumping from high onto the, the roof here. Um, but I digress. Very fitting. Uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, noises, squirrels, more likely to get alarm noises near the edge there. So as we approach the clearing, I hear a couple of squirrel alarm sounds. And on, on we go with, uh, if we allowed ourselves, uh, another hour of rich and fun clues. Ah, beautiful. Well, I hope you found your friends and the campfire was warm and yeah, I was having too much fun. They, they sent out a search and rescue party after six hours. I was having too much fun. <laughs> uh, that's great. There's so many years of wisdom distilled into how to read a tree. What, when you think of how you would hope people would use it or, or do with it after they've read it. Yeah. What was your hope there in terms of how people would apply it or use it? Indeed, uh, it's an interesting question, and it depends very much where people are on their journey into this subject. Because if it's your very first 
brushing with it. I want people to take their two or three favorite bold signs, go and look for them and get that positive feeling and just go, wow, yeah, that that feels I'm getting tickled in all the right places. I want to do this more, you know, and and that's it, it, there's an odd thing where I I talk about the clue signs and patterns as characters, because once we meet them a few times, it does start to feel more friendly because instead of having to work quite hard and scour and, and, and look for things really hard, we start to know where we're going to see things and we start to instinctively know what they mean. It's exactly the same as if you walk into a party where you, you don't know very many people, it's quite hard work, but having to kind of make a bit of effort, that sort of stuff. You walk into a room with, with you know, mates for your whole life. It's a similar sort of process that goes on. Less dialogue in a, in a sort of vocal sense, but it's a similar sort of feeling of recognition and warmness. So I want people to kind of make their first characters, meet their first characters, make their first friends. And then when they're kind of ready to see how, firstly, everything in a tree, but also everything in the outdoors is a clue. And then when they're ready, Ready. I don't want people to be deterred by this, but when they're ready to take the next step and sort of see how everything's connected, the moon tells us which way is which. It tells us where south is, and that in turn explains why the tree is shaped the way it is, because of the sunlight. So the sun, the moon, and the tree come together very quickly in our heads, and it's not complex. But then we start to realize the breeze we're feeling is is related to the animals we're seeing or not seeing, and this sort of thing. So, so the last thing I want is people to think, like, wow, there's a lot going on in my head already. This is going to be too much because you can just have a bit of fun. Just pick two or three signs and just go and find north using the shape of a tree trunk and just make that your goal for the week, if you like. Just look for that one pattern. And you'll see it a few times and then your brain will say, yeah, I can do that. Give me something else to chew on. And you just keep keep chewing on different things. And suddenly you've got a, a smorgasbord of, uh, of fun stuff to play with. I love the analogy of walking into a party and versus one where you've got all your mates there and everything. That's such a, a great way to think about it. Well, Tristan, I want to keep you as on time as possible. Last couple of quick questions. How do you, I have this concept on the podcast called Microdose Nature, which is, it's sort of making this accessible to people, right? Like bite-sized snacks. We don't have to go on these huge expeditions. I mean, great if you can, go for your life, love it. But how do you recommend microdosing nature regularly? Uh, there are a couple of uh, simple exercises which I encourage people to have a go with. One is uh, the next time you're going to you're waiting for something, it's maybe five ten minutes away, and you get that compulsive urge that we all get. I'm not immune to it to to check your phone to see if there's some amazing message on it or something. Um, <laughs> just pause. Say so you're going to let yourself do that, but you're just going to look at the landscape and find one clue to direction in it. You're going to pick something and find north or south or east or west. Use a TV satellite dish. Use anything. You know, it doesn't matter. Just use something that's not in your hands to to do it. And the other exercise is every time we're on a linear feature, you know, it can be a high street, it, it can be a path, it can be, you know, take one step, two steps off it. And it's a theoretical exercise. You say, how many different ways could I find my way back to that path if I suddenly lost sight of it? It might be the feel of the wind on the back of your neck. It might be the sounds of the animals. It might be the gradient. The, the, the list could go on for hundreds. But those are the two exercises that if you're just starting out, you can do both of those in literally three minutes and have quite a lot of fun doing it. I love that one. I'm going to give that one a go. Cool. Well, lastly, where would you love to point people to experience your work? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, uh, I have a website that I've put years of work into, and it has hundreds of examples. You can check it at no cost, uh, naturalnavigator.com. It has information about how to read a tree, but also also my other books. I have an online course. I have a, a newsletter, which you can drop your email in for. It's, it's quite occasional. I'm got a sort of spontaneous bloke. So you might go a month and not get anything. And then and then something will uh, pop up in the inbox. Puzzles. I set little puzzles. You may have seen them where I just put a photo and say, which way are we looking? Or, you know, I love those. Gonna... 
Yeah, I absolutely love those. It's a great, a great way to uh, one. It's a fun little challenge, but as a surfer too, like you've had a, quite a few that have a little bit of coast and dunes and things like that. So it's a great, great one. And uh, oh. Tristan, audience, Tristan's being quite humble because he's written quite a few books and is prolific with the writing and teaching. So I, I encourage you all to go check out How to Read a Tree and lots of other uh, things that Tristan puts out into the world to, to help us all naturally navigate better. Tristan, thank you so much for making the time. We both sort of had some patient correspondence over and you've been busy with the book tour. So I just, a lot of gratitude. Thank you for being here. And I hope we get to have more conversations in the future. Thanks so much, Jeff. I've really enjoyed our chat and uh, happy navigating. <laughs> Thanks. There are many ways in this world to get from point A to point B. But what really stoked me out from this conversation and much of Tristan's work is using navigation as a form of play that fuels our curiosity and sense of wonder. What also became clear for me was that navigating with nature's clues does two important things. One, it brings us into the present moment. And two, it helps us see the interconnection between everything in nature, including us humans. In other words, natural navigation seems like a powerful way to strengthen our relationship with the natural world. Tristan, thanks so much for your work, your exuberance, and being on the show today. And for everyone else, please know that Tristan is a prolific writer and educator on all things natural navigation. He loves to teach. He has a number of books, free info on his website and his newsletter, and even online training courses. For parents out there, I highly recommend checking out his book, The Lost Art of Reading Nature's Signs, and perhaps working through pieces of it together with your kids to help them connect with nature early and learn the wonder and ways of natural navigation. Until next time, enjoy the ride. As always, thanks for tuning in to Nature Junkie Radio. I invite you to head over to our website at naturejunkielife.com for show notes, to learn more about Nature Connection, and to sign up for our newsletter. And one last thing, please share how you microdose nature so I can share it with everyone in a future episode of the podcast. It's simple. Just get out your phone, record a voice memo for about 30 seconds to a minute, tell me your first name, where you're from, Describe how you microdose nature and importantly, how does it make you feel? Just email that voice memo to hello at naturejunkielife.com. That's hello at naturejunkielife.com. And that's all it takes. Thanks so much in advance. And as always, thanks for listening to Nature Junkie Radio. Microdose nature and replenish your stoke.